Hello and welcome to Better at Work, the podcast that will inspire you to achieve betterness in your working life. Discover how to navigate the pitfalls, challenges and work jerkery that may be getting in your way. Learn how simple changes, being authentic and even using humor can be game-changing. I'm your host, Carl Quinlan. I've spent 20 years helping people and global organizations to be better. And now I'm here to share my practical tips and real-life stories with you, as well as insights from my conversations with some incredible people. So join me as we explore how we can all be better at work. Because when work is better, life is better. Hello and welcome to Better at Work. Now, this week I am joined by Jonathan Black and I'm very excited to have Jonathan on. He has been Director of Career Services at the University of Oxford for the last 11 years. Isn't that right, Jonathan? 11 years? That's actually 15. 15? Oh my God, even longer. Uh, Before that, he had a number of different jobs, including management consultancy. He was a professional publisher, co-founder of a startup company, finance director, aerospace engineer, computer salesman, and a strategy director. Sweet mother of God. He has worked in the UK, Europe, and the US in small businesses and large corporations, private and public sector. In his day job, he works one-on-one with students. And what an amazing person to have working one-on-one with students with all the experience he's got. He presents at lots of international conferences. He's on radio and TV a lot. And he comes up with new ideas and programs to help students in schools, universities and beyond to improve their career prospects. And if that wasn't enough, he's also an author. And his book, How to Find the Career You've Always Wanted, is a must-read. And it really gives you the confidence and skills to choose your career, as well as the perspective to see the big picture and understand where you're heading. Now, Jonathan is coming to us today live from Oxford. Jonathan, welcome to Better at Work. Great to be here. Where did it all start for you? Why did you become so interested in helping people, students have better careers? Like, you know, because you've had all these different types of careers. From an engineering and very science-based schooling of double maths and physics and engineering at university and at Westland Helicopters and so on and so forth, and then management consultancy gradually moving into using lots of data analysis, but beginning to realize the importance of people and organization and procedures and all that soft, slightly unspecified stuff that became more interesting over time than just the raw numbers. And I suppose I am a living embodiment of thinking one day I want to do this sort of work, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. But of course, things have a funny way of working out, but in a different way to what we expect. This job was advertised about 15, 16 years ago. I applied and I said to the panel, well, I haven't been a lawyer and I haven't been a banker, but I've worked with them when we've done mergers and acquisitions and in publishing and so on and so forth and in management consultancy. So I've done a lot of the jobs. And to their credit, the university thought, yeah, okay, we believe that. We want people. And then I've carried on with that in my own department in the university of saying, we're going to hire people who've done the real job. I I mean, I truly believe that you hire for attitude and you train for skill. Can't, after about the age of 25, you can't change people's attitude, but you can, of course, change their skills. That's what's important about hiring. So I don't believe in, in, my, in, in my main job on the career side of hiring people who say, well, you know, I've got these qualifications in careers guidance, which 
I'm not against qualifications and people can go get them. But that's not that's not the big tick in the box to say, therefore, you should hire me. We're looking for attitude to entrepreneurship and innovation and creativity and openness and honesty and all those sorts of things. I wanted to ask you this question because you obviously, you know, you write for the FT. You've got your amazing column in the FT, dear Jonathan, answering everyone's career questions. And I just want to ask you over the last few years, do you agree that life is not divided between work and life now and it's essentially all the one? Yes, is, is the short answer. I remember talking uh, to a group of sixth formers in my old school, actually, and I talked about what students look for. And we do a survey every year of Oxford undergraduates of what they're looking for in a job. Up until this year, intellectual challenge was the number one out of 10 things. Work-life balance was number two. Pay has now become number three, but I think that's a message for our times. It never it used to be much lower than that. But when I presented this to the school, uh, you know, 18-year-olds, 17-year-olds, and I said, what do we mean by work-life balance? I mean, after all, what are you and I doing right now? I mean, I regard it's, it's all the same thing. And I think once you're, if you are a professional and you're working, you are always thinking about work. Does that mean you're in the office? No, not always. And But... We're often having thoughts when you're waiting for the show to start or you're driving somewhere or you're in the shower or you're whatever, you suddenly a work thing will come up. So I think they have blended if you're in the right job. Now, the school mm. kids said, if I was shelf stacking, that would be work. And then when I clock off, I'd go home and that would be life and they would be separate. Now, I remember 100 years ago when I was an apprentice in a factory and I had a session of that eight-week session in a small parts machining shop. And I would be, I mean, I would spend a week machining a thousand washers. And I thought, well, it, it doesn't matter because, you know, you're standing up all day working this lathe, making washers for the aircraft. But it's okay because when I go home, then I will read intellectual books and I'll forget it. It doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't. Somehow, if the work has come down a level, your whole conscious behavior comes down and all your good, all I found I was good for, and it might be a reflection of me rather than others, um, that all I was good for was then going to the pub and um, so watching television. And, you know, you could feel the whole level had dropped. So, yes, they're intimately connected. And if you're in the right job, I think you're always thinking about them. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And I think if you're passionate about your job, you'll see things out in the world and you might see in a different industry. You might be walking to the supermarket. You might see a company having a new logo on a totally different thing. And you go, oh, I love the colors they've used on that. I could use that in my branding yes. or, you know, I, I, and I think that it's, it is down to passion and, and you have to have some interest. And I don't know anyone in a job where every, well, I haven't met them anyway, John, where every single aspect of it lights them totally up. There's some bit of administration that you've got to do in all jobs. Like, you know, <laughs> there's something that you go, oh God, I've got to deal with Margaret in finance. She's going to kill me now today. You know, th there's always something, right? But I think overall, if you've got a passion and energy for it. Yeah, no, look, that has changed though. That's changed because I think, you know, when I was starting at work, if you liked 30% of it, you thought you were doing pretty well. And the rest was drudgery. And, and it was, it, but you had a roof over your head, you had food on the table, and, and you were starting out a career. Nowadays, I think we're seeing with, and I'm going to caricature it here, with Gen Z, they're not going to put up with that. 
They're looking for purpose and meaning, many of them, in the work they do. They want to feel they're working for an organization that has good ethics and is supporting whatever that is close to their heart, like um, climate crisis. And, and so they want that number, not 30, but 70, 80% to be valuable. And if it mm. isn't, they'll leave. And, and I think, fair enough. Now, you don't want to leave too quickly, but that's a whole other topic. I think it's a great point. You've actually, you know, Gen Z, it, it, let's go to that because I had a question on that. You get a lot of negativity said around Gen Z. I don't agree with it, but you do hear a lot of people in the workplace saying, oh, geez, they can't, you can't keep them happy. They're difficult to manage and all of that. And I know that you had recently, you know, talked a little bit about this and you said, and I loved what you said, like all new generations entering the workplace, they yes. bring new ideas, new energy and a new perspective. Gen Z brings the courage to challenge and express their views as well. The rest of us can benefit if we listen, respect and present our own ideas. So together we make things better. And I, I, I love that you said that because I do think, you know, of course, it's, it's, you can't paint every Gen Z with, you know, that they're perfect and you can't paint them all that they're a pain in the ass, which you do hear a lot. And I loved what you said, right, that, you know, bring them together. Let's co-create together with the, the approaches they bring. Have you anything else to add on that? Yeah, I mean, you can say, oh, they don't last long. They, they're not loyal. They're this, they're that, the other. Uh, and they're expecting too much and and they... Uh, they're concerned about their mental health and all the sorts of things that we weren't allowed or didn't talk about 30 years ago. So, yeah, on, on balance, and it's not even a very difficult balance, but they're, they're really good. You want the energy and the youth and, you know, they are our future, frankly, and um, they're going to be paying our pensions if we ever get to retire. We should embrace them. Now, there is a slight, just to push back a little bit, we have to kind of break it to 22-year-old new graduates. So they don't actually know very much. Mm. Yeah, one of my colleagues, um, there, there was an education supplement on the FT, and one of my colleagues there wrote a lovely thing. And they said, right, what did you wish you'd learnt on your first day at work? And one of them was, nobody cares about your dissertation. They, you know, you think <laughs> nobody actually cares about it. And I think the second tip was about, you know, ask lots of questions when you arrive because you don't know anything and you want to be remembered. Uh, Stephen Bush wrote this. You want to be remembered as the person who asked about it. No one will remember if you asked how the coffee machine worked, but they'll all remember if you blew it up on Wednesday. So you'll never live that down. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, a little humility doesn't go amiss. And now we're getting into sort of norm, uh, human behavior in the workplace of of the respect bit goes both ways. And, yes. and if we if we hover right up about interviews and how you're going to get on in the workplace, it's about do other people want to work with you? Absolutely. You know, I used to go to some of the, when I worked at Goldman Sachs, I used to go out to meet some of the students because, you know, we would have these fairs and we'd be trying to find really good students and, you know, to bring in on mm -hmm. the graduate program. And, you know, I used to find some of them I mean, maybe it's me. I liked the ones who were a bit more humble, the ones that were trying to impress you and they had, you know, they were regurgitating to you everything that was in the latest Financial Times and all of that. You're like, OK, we just let's step back. And, and actually, you know, I always like to ask some questions on, well, why do they want to do this kind of a job? What's led them to this point? And and being humble, as you said, was really good. And it didn't matter whether it was Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan. As you said, people are going to, they want to like the person they're working with, right? It doesn't matter what kind of role. Of course, you want some people, you know, you want smart people, 
but you know you you have to have the balance yeah the the smarts for places like goldman's or or lawyers or whatever the smarts and the uh, um, qualifications are a ticket to play that's all it is because actually what employers like you when you're in that role are looking for is well number one is are you a good team player are you going to play nicely with the rest of us but that's not at all the same as are you like me because you know, heaven forbid we have people who are all the same. Oh. We really don't want that. But we do want no, people we do that not. want to think, when I get up in the morning, oh, X is going to be in the office today. That's great. I really enjoy working with them. I agree. I agree. Now, here at, at like on Better at Work, we think working on yourself is very important. You know, being self-aware, knowing what your values are. I love that you ground a lot of your work with helping people with their career questions, et cetera, around transaction analysis. Now, I love transaction analysis. Anyone that works with me would be like, oh, no, he's off again. <laughs> For anyone that doesn't know, what is it and why do you leverage this when you are maybe answering career questions? The FT questions, of which there have been 140 something now, readers give some fabulous advice. But the advice the readers give uh, when I do go back and read it is usually at a primary, immediate level about do this action, do that action, this work. I tend to sort of step back and think, what is going on here? What is the motivation for this move? And indeed, one would do that in an interview with people. Tell me about your career path and what motivated you each time to change jobs um, and what was driving you? Because again, we're, we're down to behavior. So transactional analysis is around things like you know, games people play. It's around the, you know, the, the drama triangle of you know, a persecutor, rescuer, and, yes. and victim and how people play those games. It's quite a good way when you walk in, you probably saw this in your corporate life, you walk in and you see this thing going on and, and friction going on in an organization and people are playing games. Yes, um, I've experienced it where you walk in and another take on it is the parent-adult-child behaviors. And so if you've got the other side saying, Oh, tell us, you're the director. Tell us what pro system we should buy. And I'm saying to myself, you're being an adaptive child here and you want me to be the parent. And I'm not going to play that game because once we get locked into this game, there's very difficult to get out of the game. It's a bit like the drama triangle that the persecutor loves pulling people into the game. You step in as the rescuer to say, oh, can I help? Bang! Now you're turned on as the victim yes. and the persecutor persecutes you. And then, and so the best way, is, once you understand, I mean, look, it's not perfect, but it's a model I agree. for the way people behave. And if you've got a model in your mind, and if it's that one or a different one, it helps you to take a bit of NLP to step back into a third person and say, hmm, I can see what's going on here. I feel really annoyed by this. So mm. I've got to recognize my own feelings and try to suppress them. Although remember, we are all human. And it's okay sometimes to react and get angry, just not too often and in the right place. But, you know, recognize we're humans too. And then you can use the, the model of parent, adult, child and think, no, I'm going to stay. So in that example I gave where the, one of the staff who'd been around a long time was being an adaptive child with me and saying, tell me what computer system mm. to buy, you know, so I'm not going to play your parent here. Mm. What do you, you know? I'm going to become adult and I'm going to force you to behave as an adult as well. So we've got this, you know, they have these three circles of parent, yeah. adult, child. 
and I'm going to, adults in the middle, I'm going to force you to behave like an adult to me. I'm not going to play this game because actually, you know, you're better than this and, and we can get there. And some people never get out of that. And yeah. then, you know, it's not going to work. I love it. And for anyone listening, you know, I love these tools, the drama triangle, transactional analysis. And look, you know what? None of us are perfect. I have actually in the past even found myself going into child mode, thinking about why am I going into child mode? Is this something triggering from my youth? Is this, you know, am, am, am I in child mode now here because that person is speaking to me in this way. So I think, you know, you struck on something really great there. And for our listeners, the fact that Jonathan uses these models when he's answering questions from people, it's such a a, a great insight. And I'm, I'm so glad, Jonathan, you shared some of that with us because uh, it's a great insight that you use those. I mean, my own weakness is, uh, and this, this I think goes back to my engineering undergraduate days, is engineers try to solve problems and make the world easier to navigate, if you like, whether it's bridges or rockets or planes. And so I tend to jump in too quickly as a rescuer. You end up in a loop and it's quite hard to get out of. Oh my God, Jonathan, you and I are kind of similar. Now, I'm not an engineer, but I'm a people pleaser. So <laughs> I, I go into rescue mode and I'm like, Oh, geez, I've just wasted two hours here now. And like, you know, I, it was all because I was just being a people pleaser. If you go further into the into the books and they talk about, you know, the various different role plays and models and you're trying to rescue. And we've all come across this where people say, yes, but yes, but yes, yes but that won't work. Yes, but this won't mm. work. And in the end, it drives you completely bonkers. And you say, Absolutely. well, for God's sake, like, what do you want? Oh, <laughs> I don't want this. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I want to go on holidays. Um, now, yeah, <laughs> We, as you know, we love your dear Jonathan Column and Annette, my co-host and I, like, you know, we aspire to be as good as you answering our listeners questions. You help people, of course, with their common career questions. And we looked at a lot of your questions. We did our own research, Jonathan, and we found that our sense was the most common question you get is how can I transition into a new career field? Is that right? Were we right? And if so, what do you tell people? Yes, you're right. The questions we get, whether they are 25 or 35 or older, is to say, hang on, this isn't what I signed up for. And remember, people's ambitions and experiences change. So we do love these models. I mean, at school where you have the Morrisby tests when you're 14, and then all the tests that you can get in the back of magazines, or you can go online, about the career for you. Yeah, it'll give you, it'll stimulate some ideas for right now. But in five years' time, you can change. And and I also think that people forget you can sometimes test things you like in your current job. I used to say that to people all the time in the banks, etc. Go, well, if you really like marketing, why don't you go and spend some time with the marketing team? Or actually, we need to do some marketing around this whole new program we need to do. Do you want to do that? Like there are ways that I just think people sometimes get so caught up, they don't know where to begin. But I would always say to people, think about, could you do this in your current job? Could you try before you buy? Indeed. Or outside your current job, if you've got the time. I mean, I know banking is pretty full on hours wise, but could you go and do some volunteering work in the charity and take on the social media marketing, whatever, in that organization? They would love to have you there. You would learn. And you haven't thrown the baby out of the bathwater of I'm going to throw out my job because you do need the income. You've probably got dependents. 
or mortgages or something, you, you don't want to throw it all away. So yes, definitely try before you buy and finding ways to do it. And even if you don't throw yourself into it, go and talk to the marketing people. Yes. Take somebody for a drink. Now, what do you think are the most important human skills for for people at work or, or students or what what in your view are the most important human skills for people? Oh, well, number one is clearly teamwork, is being able to get along with people. Now, we all learned to do it in the sandbox in primary school, and we kind of kept it going through middle school and senior school in teams and not getting picked and getting picked. And we learned how to rub along. But then we get to university and then it all becomes competitive. Some people get into the zero-sum game mentality of like, if you're doing well, then somehow, and I don't know how, I'm doing badly. Mm. I don't know how it happens, but I must be doing badly because you've done well. Now, of course, that is complete antithesis to how to make the world a better place because it's, I'm really pleased for your success and maybe... Uh, it's just been great to have met that person and be part of that and just to celebrate other people's success. And then, you know, wonderful, warm things happen. So teamwork, number one, innovation or creativity or entrepreneurship or what, whatever you want to call that. Especially, I mean, I love it when we have new members of staff because I say, right, before six months is up and before you've gone native, I need you to be saying, why do you do it this way? Yeah. Why are we doing it? Why aren't we streamlining this? Why do we do it at all? Those are the, you know, you want those sorts of challenges. If we go back to Gen Z, it's like, why are we doing this? A curiosity and excitement. I mean, again, whenever I've read students cover letters, often, you know, they end having done a really good letter saying, do get in touch if you need anything. And I do hope you get the chance to read this mm. and saying, stop being needy yes. and being an adaptive child. Be an adult and say, this is a friend of mine told me that's gave me this advice once, you know, be an adult and say, I look forward to hearing from you once you've had a chance to read it. But also say, I am really excited about this role. Yes. So, you know, Kahal, a lot of this career stuff, probably all of it boils down to what does the other person need and want to know? Exactly. That's all it is. Don't tell them what you feel like talking about or what you'd love to tell them about your dissertation. <laughs> you know, they don't care. What they want to know is, do you want to come and work here? Why should I employ you? Yes. Are you fun to have around? Think about the other side. I agree. I agree because, you know, I have done so many graduate interviews over my career. I don't want to tell you how many I've done. So many. And we used to do them in, in, in the bank. We used to do them back to back, like over two days. And you'd be in this hot room and you'd just see him coming in and you'd be like, you know, immediately some of them I'd go, Oh God, we're going to get every. A that they got in university and we're going to get all this detail that is not of use. And, 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 you know, I think bringing your human to work is so important and being able to socially connect with someone. Now, you know, on that note, employers are obviously, you know, are asking us a lot. How do we hire graduates in this dynamic market? You know, one of our listeners, Angela Collins from SETU in Ireland, says that when she meets with employers, they talk about the demand for skilled professionals is only predicted to increase over the coming years, mm -hmm. and they're struggling to tackle this. Very quickly, I mean, you know, what are your thoughts here on what employers can do to hire really great graduates? What would be one thing you would tell them to do? Okay, so I think especially with the rise of AI and ChatGPT and all of these things, 
My latest gig with my colleagues is about authentic assessment. Many have retreated from campus, including uh, during the pandemic, of course, where they had to, and they went online, and then they thought, oh, we could do all these AI tools to assess people. Well, they're all going to play the AI tools back to you. So what you have to do now is come on campus, meet them, almost do a semi-assessment of them, but you're going to look at the whites of their eyes, and you're going to be able to impress people and persuade them. So that's, that's the thing to do now. That's a great one, actually. I hadn't thought of that one. We're also seeing a lot of hiring managers asking applicants who make it into the shortlist to complete a challenge or provide a document in response. Are you hearing much about that? Because we're seeing a lot of that. You want to put them into scenarios or situations where you can observe how they work with students, how they work in a team, how they write emails, how yeah. they how they play together. So again, in, in my college role in welfare, we put them in groups and say, here are some scenarios of uh, student issues, present it, and then let's discuss it. And we want to see what you think about this student who had uh, you know, suicidal ideation or this student over here who's got an essay crisis at three o'clock in the morning and how you would have dealt with it and so on and so forth. So again, a bit of role playing without actually hiring them. We're trying yeah. to get them to, to see how they would behave. Now, Jonathan, we're all about being better at work. What do you think is the smallest possible change our listeners could do to have an impact on a better day at work tomorrow? Well, I think it's a huge change and a small one as well. And I think it's what we were talking about earlier. It's, it's thinking about the motivations of what people are up to. Now, NLP would tell you that everyone is executing their own strategy perfectly. You may completely disagree with the strategy they're following but you don't disagree with the person. And I think if you, that gives you some distance and it gives you a bit of emotional detachment from saying, I hate that person, to move to, I don't like what they're planning and I have to change their strategy. So I think that sort of detachment would help people. I mean, it's a huge change and it's a small thing. I love that. Can you share with our listeners something you learned or experienced at work that unexpectedly made your whole life better? Well, I'm going to turn this the other way around. Uh, for us, managing small children when we had children, well, we have children, but when they were smaller and in the family and managing that, juggling the time, working out how to never say no, yeah, but diffusing issues, avoiding conflict. So you don't say, what would you like to drink? You say, do you want orange or water? So those tricks that you can bring to work it can just smooth the way and avoid lots of pitfalls. Love that one. And we finish every interview, Jonathan, with this question. Can you recall the best advice you've ever received that's made you better at work? No pride in ownership. And that was drilled into us at uh, when I was at Booz Allen in management consultancy. And ever since, yes, you've written it, but it can always be better. I learn this every time I send a column into the FT. I think it's press ready and it comes back better every time from the editors. I mean, I think this is a big shout out to editors everywhere. They do a fabulous job to make our words, spoken or written, come out so well. Uh, and I often don't even recognize it sometimes. I love that. I'm of the same view. You know, I have a lovely girl that does some work for me here, Phoebe, and she always makes things better. You know, our newsletter, I'll have an idea and then it'll come back looking even better than what I've had. So I completely agree. So there's there's uh, Jonathan's no pride in ownership. That's a good one to take away. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been, I've really enjoyed it.
For more information on Jonathan, go to his LinkedIn. He's at linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash Jonathan Black. There you'll find details on his insight, his amazing book, Find the Career You've Always Wanted, and so much more. Plus, of course, do check out the Financial Times for his Dear Jonathan column, where he answers all of your career questions. Thank you, Jonathan, and have a great day. And we'll hopefully talk to you again soon. Thank you. Welcome to Let's Take This Offline. Hello there and welcome to Let's Take This Offline. And of course, as always, I'm joined by the amazing Annette. How are you doing? Kahal, I'm really good. I have had a big day of ticking things off my to-do list. So I'm feeling a little bit smug, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you are very smug. <laughs> uh, listener, she was very smug before I, this. She yeah. goes, I had like 18 things on my list. I got them all done. <laughs> well, anyway, Annette, how great was it to have Jonathan on? But let's get right into it because I know you've got three great takeaways. Over to you, Annette. My first takeaway was around Jonathan's insight, hire for attitude and train for skill. Linked to that, Jonathan's advice within here for graduates, approach with humility and when you start a new job to ask lots of questions. So some great advice in there. There's also a responsibility on leaders to nurture that attitude as well. Great point, Annette. What was your number two takeaway? transaction analysis and the value of being aware of and understanding the concepts in transactional analysis and using that to step back from difficult conversations or dysfunctional situations to observe, you know, what's happening here? Is this a victim, persecutor, rescuer triangle or is this a, a parent child? Is someone stepping into adaptive child and asking you to solve problems for them? So I think that one of the proponents of transactional analysis that I've done a lot of reading on and spent some time in a course on is uh, Tybee Carla, who's an American clinical psychologist author, and he was also a presidential communications advisor to Bill and Hillary Clinton. And he added to transactional analysis, the process theory model. He developed a personality patent inventory filled out by nearly 2 million people and identified six different personality types, the thinker, the harmonizer, the persister, rebel, imaginal, promoter. From that understanding of your personality type, based on his research, that by modifying how we say what we say according to the personalities of those we interact with and our own personalities, that we can become more effective communicators. There's so much in transaction analysis and how it is in play around the world. Yeah, transaction analysis, that was so useful for me in the workplace to go, okay, why am I in child mode here? Is it because this person I'm speaking to is acting as a more parent mode? And all of that is such a big factor in a lot of dysfunction that you can often see in it in organizations because you're like, okay, once you actually understand transaction analysis, it does help you a lot helps you step back a little bit and go, what bigger thing could be going on here? Now, number three, what did you have? Number three, Kahal, was around the soft skills, which we call the difficult skills, the critical skills. Jonathan calls them the employability skills and the importance of that in our hiring decisions, mm. in our career direction change decisions. These skills, we can develop them. They're learnable. They're teachable. Creativity can be taught. So that's my takeaway. The criticality of the human skills, 
link that to self-awareness, understand where we're at with those soft skills and what are our plans to develop and enhance those skills for ourselves and for those people that we work with and the people we care about. Love that, Annette. Joe is actually returning, is planning to return to the workplace for the first time in 10 years. And Annette, she wants some advice on getting ready for the interview. She hasn't had an interview in 10 years and she's quite nervous about it, which is understandable. Kahal, I've got three tips here for Joe. The first one is around the technical. So prepare thoroughly for the interview, understanding the organization, reading the latest media coverage on the organization, looking at the board and and the management, understand what's going on, look at their most recent financial results publicly available, really think about the job description, what you understand about it, and really have a plan in place about what you would do in the first 90 days. Even map that out on a one-page canvas really thorough, comprehensive technical preparation for the interview, including thinking about some of the examples that you'll use, the specific things that you have achieved and done or how you've approached things and what was the outcome of your approaches that are applicable to show that you have the skills and you have the experience for that role. The second one is around being ready emotionally being calm and chill, doing a meditation, your breathing, understanding your body language. There's a fantastic TED Talk by Amy Cuddy about how our body language can change us. I'd really recommend that we can put a link to that TED Talk in our next Better Bits newsletter. It's so powerful to help you get into a relaxed mode. So to harness your adrenaline, yes, but to also be calm and that you're going to be, you know, you're going to move out of your sympathetic nervous system of stress into your parasympathetic nervous system being in control so that you can be really aligned to your values and be your best self in that interview. So that's the second one around emotional readiness. The third one is around, you know, when the interview has finished, the interviewer or the panel might ask you, do you have any questions for us? And I think often, especially for us people pleasers, Kahal, for me, I would previously have always said, oh, no, 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 no questions. You've covered everything really well. I'm fine. So moving into being ready with some questions. And I think that shows your your curiosity, your engagement, how you think. One could be, what would I need to do, achieve or lead in the first year for you to say or to believe that I've been successful? A second one could be around, is there anything that needs to happen that isn't happening now? And so if you can draw that out and have the interviewer reflect back to you what they would like you to do, the positives that come from that and endorsing that they have been heard and the feelings they'll have by having you listen and letting them talk that through. Thank you so much, Annette. Uh, Some really good advice there for Joe. Uh, Joe, all the best with the interview. And I know it's coming up in the next few weeks, but do keep us posted. And hopefully that advice, great advice there from Annette, three great things to do. And thank you everyone for listening. That is it for this week's show. We are back 
very soon for our final episode of the season. Uh, so hopefully you'll join us for that. I'm getting ready for that as we speak. Of course, don't forget to subscribe to us. Uh, you can subscribe on whichever is your preferred platform for listening to podcasts. So Apple, Spotify, wherever it is, do subscribe. And please do share with your friends if you do like the show. You are not going to believe this, Annette, but I have a call out for Can. Can, I used to manage Can at Goldman Sachs many, many years ago, and he sent me a text at the weekend. He said, I'm out for drinks with friends and they are in brand and marketing and they are all following your podcast. They absolutely love it. And he said that he was telling them, oh, my God, he's my old boss. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Apparently, it came up on their Instagram and LinkedIn feeds and uh, and they are loving the show in it. So this is what I mean. Please share it with your friends. And of course, we've got our newsletter as well, which Annette, uh, we keep getting more and more people signing up to the newsletter, which is keeping me on my toes. Thank you, everyone. We'll talk to you very, very soon. Thanks, Kahal. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to Better at Work with me, Carl Quinlan. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and rate, review or subscribe as this helps others find the podcast. For more practical tips, simple tools and ideas on how to aim for betterness, head on over to betteratwork.com.au and sign up for our newsletter. Until next time, watch out for those work jerks and keep reaching for better.